Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hi there. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and welcome to School Struggles. This is the first show under School Struggles, and we will be talking here about all of the issues that concern your child, learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, a whole range of topics. And the show is sponsored by Mayor Johnson. And Mayor Johnson knows that with every child there is a solution. Explore a variety of educational solutions at www.mayorjohnson.com while saving 20% using promo code SOLUTIONS20 at checkout. Mayor Johnson is your special education super source, so go over to their incredible website and discover their outstanding products. So again, my name is Richard Selznick, and I just welcome you to this first edition of School Struggles. I'm really proud to be a part of this Coffee Clutch team. Um, like I said, on School Struggles, we'll be, we'll be covering a range of topics. And just for a quick introduction, I am a child psychologist. I'm the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is part of the Department of Pediatrics at Cooper University Healthcare, which is in South Jersey in Voorhees, New Jersey. And I'm the author of two books, The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the recently published book called School Struggles, which is where we got the name for the show. And you can learn more about these on my website, www.shutdownlearner.com, and the books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles. But tonight, more excitingly, we have our guest is Dr. Michael Goodman, and Dr. Goodman will be talking to us in a, a minute or two about ADHD and topics related to ADHD. And just by quick introduction, uh, Dr. Goodman is the Chairman and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University and Chief of Pediatrics at the Children's Regional Hospital at Cooper. Dr. Goodman is board certified in pediatrics, child neurology, and clinical neurophysiology. Dr. Goodman also holds a master's degree in medical management from Carnegie Mellon University. Now, I have a whole long page of other stuff about him in front of me, but I'm, I'm going to have to cut it down because it's so impressive. Just it will, it will take the whole show time. But as a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Goodman has an interest in children with ADHD, seizure disorders, fetal and neonatal neurology, and concussion, and he is certified impact consultant. So, Dr. Goodman, welcome to our first show. Good evening. Thank you for having me, Richard. I'm thrilled, and we're you know we're going to be, the the goal of school struggles, as you know, Michael, is to talk in down-to-earth terms to parents
agents and professionals out there. And, uh, you know, I find that with so many people coming in to see me, this, there continues to be a lot of confusion about terms and topics and how to get tested and what to do next. And that's what we're going to try to get to tonight uh, regarding ADHD. So in down-to-earth terms, Michael, talk to us a little bit about ADHD. What, what is ADHD? Why don't we start with that? First, the, the simple, the ADHD, these four letters stand for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And right off the bat, uh, there's some sometimes confusion between my child has a ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, without hyperactivity or with hyperactivity. The bottom line to it is we use the term ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, to cover a group of conditions that is attentional problems with hyperactivity, with hyperactivity and impulsivity, with um, inattention, or with a combination of those factors. Uh, it is, I believe, uh, a condition that is both overdiagnosed but also underrecognized. So it's a condition that really people need to pay attention to because there are specific ways to make this diagnosis and specific things that should be um, avoided, such as uh, if someone has a learning problem, they may be mistakenly called uh, an attentional problem, and it's not really attention, but it's just learning, which is one of the aspects of uh, of your books. Right, right. What, what, you, what, what you know, you said about the overdiagnosis. What do you think leads to overdiagnosis? I think what it is is, you know, one of the aspects of medical care in certainly in our country, and it's becoming more and more over the years, is that people want a quick fix, a quick answer. You know, this is my diagnosis. I could take a pill to make this kind of condition better. And one of the aspects about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and again, I'm going to use just the, the letters ADHD because it'll, right. it'll save us some time as we go through the whole uh, interview this evening. Uh, but one of the things about ADHD is you want to make a proper diagnosis, and the management is not just pills. It's really looking at the entire child. You have to make a proper diagnosis and then a pro apply a, a, a treatment strategy towards the child. So, you know, proper diagnosis. I mean, I, I face this in my practice all the time as a, as a psychologist because I know that so much of this, I tell parents a lot that so much depends on, in a sense, whose doorstep they land on. You know, if they land on the child neurologist's doorstep, they might get diagnosed one way, and um, a pediatrician might see it a different way. Then a psychologist has a whole battery of tests. What do you think goes into a proper diagnosis? How, how, how does how does one go about this kind of diagnosis? The proper di diagnosis, you know, ADHD is a is a essentially a checklist of symptoms and problems. So first off, the symptoms need to be present before the age of six years of age. And then there's a group of symptoms that are in, under the heading of inattention, such as distractibility, um, needing to be reminded for issues, forgetfulness, and other kinds of problems such as disorganization. There's another group of symptoms that fall under the header of hyperactivity and impulsivity, fidgetiness, hyperactivity, impulsivity, um, jumping out of lines, restlessness, bouncing all over the place. And simply stated, if you have at least six of the of the symptoms listed in inattention, under inattention in the, what's called the DSM-3, the criteria, and under the diagnostic criteria, then you have the inattentive subtype if you have at least six of those symptoms. If you have at least six of the symptoms under the hyperactive impulsive subtype, then you're a hyperactive impulsive person. Mm-hmm. 
However, if you have symptoms under both of those categories, then there's something really magical that's called a, the combined subtype, where you have both the inattentive and the um, hyperactive impulsive form. So it's really just a matter of are these symptoms present. But it's not are they simply present, but it, are they present, have they been present since at least six years of age, and are they present in more than one setting? And I think that's one of the most important aspects of this condition. Because a child who is distractible, inattentive, unfocused, restless in school, but not at home, may end up having a learning problem and not having ADHD. On the flip side of this, if a child only has symptoms at home, they may have some psycho psychological or stressful situations in the home and they get along quite well at school, I would be more concerned about behavioral symptoms, parenting issues, family dynamics, and other stressors that may make this child appear inattentive or distractible. So let me throw you a curveball and make it in, in real terms. A girl that I observed in school, she was a preschooler when I observed her first. Uh, most of the, It was a large group setting that I was watching her in, and most of the kids were focused to the front where there was, in a sense, entertainment to the front and some you know, talking and the teacher who was leading the, the activity. And this girl was one of the few in the large group who was clearly inattentive in the sense that her, fa- her focus and gaze was not toward the front. You know, it was, it was elsewhere. And significantly so. I then later evaluated her and found that she had language, I think she had language processing issues. Now, my concern with this would be that if, you know, that if someone had just gone through the checklist um, or had maybe seen her in a half-hour type of diagnosis, they would have labeled her fairly quickly as inattentive type ADHD, which she, I think she still may be, if you follow what I'm saying. But I, I, I guess where does the, this intersection of language functions and ADHD kind of where, how do we tease that stuff out for a proper well, diagnosis? They can actually exist together, and that's why it should be done in in cooperation with a a complete diagnostic evaluation, not just looking only at symptoms of inattention or or hyperactivity, but you want to look Mm -hmm. at school performance. You want to look at language. You want to get a history for development. You want to get a family Mm -hmm. history and understand what's going on with this child, not in just one area. Actually, your your description is is, leads me to another point uh, to, to just describe one of the aspects of pediatric uh, disorders, and particularly ADHD, is the hyperactive impulsive form is much more common in boys. Mm-hmm. So boys tend to be really fidgety, really bouncy, and they're pretty easy to identify typically early on when they're bouncing all over their pre-K or kindergarten class, and the teacher basically says, uh, medicate this child or get them out of my classroom. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, the women, the girls, tend to be less hyperactive and impulsive and they're much more likely to be inattentive and distractible, and therefore often a little bit more difficult to pick up and identify. Um, I also find the diagnosis of ADHD is sometimes difficult um, when someone's not overly hyperactive and just a little bit distractible, Mm -hmm. and they're able to function and get by pretty well in kindergarten and first grade, and sometimes it's not until they get into that end of of lower school um, where the requirements of paying attention and doing things on their own become a little bit more where the teacher doesn't repeat and sort of spoon feed in that third and fourth grade level. And there are even some children that can get by at that point 
And it's not until they get into middle school, sort of in the sixth grade range, where life becomes really independent and the child has to remember the homework and remember things they're not going to be reminded of it and the inattentive children often really crash and burn at that point and it's all of a sudden now it's a problem when indeed if you look in the history they've had inattention and distractibility all along boy i you know you and i have presented a number of times and every time we we have these interactions so many i get excited listening to you know i want to respond to so many points that that you raise and i and i have that happen now i think the, that it's such a great point to to you know that 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 in a sense i think what you're saying is that first that kindergarten first grade even into second grade that in a sense you can kind of mask it because the level of demands have not been so are not so great at that point. Isn't that what you're, you're saying? So in a sense, by third grade, fourth grade, now, you know, there's much more of an expectation that, okay, manage on your own, independent functioning, you, you can't spoon feed, and, and at that point, there's, there's that kind of overload or something that's happening to the more, eight, I think of it as a style, Michael, ADHD-style brain uh, having difficulty. I agree with you completely, and I've, and I've heard you say that before, and it's, and it's right. It's it's a it's a style. It's a trait that they they perform in. So so, you know, people say to me, "I got the test," or "I want to know the ADHD test." Now, is it? There's no one test correct for ADHD. Correct, and and there are a variety of checklists and um, tests that can be completed. And just to name a few that many people are familiar with, the Connors testing and Vanderbilt testing, and really what those tests do is they quantify symptoms um, and, and really can sometimes make you under, lean more towards more behavioral disorders or, or ADHD-type diagnoses. But my, my approach to this is simply getting a complete history, speaking to the family, reviewing school records, and speaking to the child and understanding yeah. what's going on. Because it's really just a checklist. Uh, for right, diagnosis. right. You know, they both work well together, the checklist and the history. It's funny, years ago I, I had gone to a training on ADHD and the presenter, who is a pretty reputable person, said about a, about the more hyperactive side, he said, follow the impulsive trail. And that has always stayed with me in terms of the history. So they said, look, you know, that follow, just keep going back and and really see the trail and the threads of impulsivity for that type, for that you know, format for that style ADHD, and, and 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 you'll see that will really help you with understanding the diagnosis. I think that you would agree with that, correct? A absolutely. Now, another part of the testing aspect, and and while many people would like to have a more sophisticated examination, mm -hmm. um, and there is a lot of research that's being done looking at more fan, you know, more higher right. power testing to make a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. There's n you can't lay someone in an MRI scanner or do a right. functional MRI test or do an EEG and and say that this person has um you know ADHD based on the findings of that uh test itself. Right. And then, then there is maybe not the EEGs but then there are these other kinds of computerized tests where they have to hit push the space bar every time you see uh a triangle or something like that. I, I mean I I'm a little suspect of those tests as well. What's your feeling about those? Correct, and again, they're going to show us inattention. They're going to demonstrate inattention. But in, in my in, in in my practice, 
this is I can get the same information from reviewing some records and doing a complete history, a thorough history. Uh, I don't need necessarily put them through that testing, through the, the cost, the expense, and uh, it all right. does is give us a quantified number. Now, I will say that many people use some of these diagnostic tests, these uh, checklists that give us a number to follow management and follow treatment. Mm -hmm. But I much more much more prefer to follow the patient clinically, asking questions and seeing how right. they perform and how they do. I have found the checklist. I explain it to parents. I like to see what you think about this. I explain it to parents as, you know, I'm I'm evaluating your child here today within this window of three hours, and I see what I see. And often, because of the artificial nature of testing, it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. It's highly structured. You may not see a lot of the day-to-day -day behaviors that are shown uh, with ADHD. So I'll say to parents, look, the checklist help quantify the day-to-day. It's, it's, it's like you as parents see the ongoing behaviors, and that's where I think the quantifying through the Connors or the Basque or whatever other you know, checklists are being used is helpful. Correct. And, and, you know, one of the aspects of this as a neurologist, most of the conditions that I diagnose and treat are done by, by history. And so we, right. you become familiar with able to asking questions and understanding which direction a diagnosis is going on and being able to corroborate findings by asking a question two or three times in a different direction, asking the child, asking the parents, reviewing school records to come to an accurate diagnosis. So with it's that not history, simple, but it has to be thorough. Right. So with that, with that history, what might be some indicators if the parent presents the usual things at the front end, not paying attention, tends to get distracted, what would be things in the history that may take you away from, you sort of alluded to it before, take you away from thinking, you know what, this is purely an ADHD. What are some things that might you know, throw you a bit of a curveball? Well, clearly, in, in when we're looking, at the, the first area is medical. Are, are we missing some sort of seizure disorder? Because teachers are very good at that. They do a lot of my work as a neurologist in diagnosing children with seizure problems because some seizures present with staring, distractibility, just turning off for a little while. And uh, we have to go through a, a nice evaluation to make sure we're not having a child that's distractible because their brain is basically turning off for a brief little seizure. Okay. So once we ask our questions and look for seizure problems and get that out of the way, I, I add to my questions for a, attention problems, looking at inattention, looking at hyperactivity. I then start looking at socialization aspects, team sports. Are they able to play with other children? Are they excluded in play? How do they get along with peers? How do they get along with their siblings? Are there signs of anxiety, anger problems, violence problems, unprovoked violence? mood swings, temper issues, um, and by looking through a, a series of behavioral questions, you can often identify someone that's having other difficulties and not simply ADHD, because clearly someone who is anxious, nervous, or upset um, may not have a, a good, good, good ability to pay attention in a variety of different settings. And I can say that in many, many situations where I'll go through my history and ask if there's something specifically been stressful in the child's life, people will say, no, no, this didn't happen. There's nothing going on. They're fine. And as I ask questions and go through a little bit more detail, I found out that, oh, you know, we moved six months ago when the, the distractibility started. But the, uh, they're, they're fine with it. They're happy about the move. Well, maybe they're not as happy and as uh, as uh, organized and hap as, as content 
as the rest of the family is. I've found out that family members have passed away. I've found, found out that people have had divorces that people don't think about because as an adult, as a parent, we mm-hmm. come to grips with the, with the situation, but children deal with stress in, in different ways, and inattention is clearly one of them. Long way well, response. <laughs> right, right. No, no. I think that, that you raise many, many, uh, var- you know, so many variables that could be leading to a child being inattentive, distractible. I think that they're that uh, taking, like you said, taking a thorough history is such an important step. Um, what, how do you judge severity? You know, this is a spectrum disorder, and people will say, "Well, I, he's on the spectrum." I'm mean, like, "Well, there are a lot of spectrums. This is just one of many spectrums." So, how how do you judge the level of severity from your point of view? Again, in, in my my per perspective on 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 severity is, it, if it's your child, it's severe, and it's problematic, and it's 100 percent. And so, I have to listen to what the family is saying, to how the child is performing, and put it into uh, how, how it's affecting their lives. If the child is having difficulty and struggling in school and doing poorly, then that's significant. Um, if a child is struggling and, and not doing as well as we would expect them to do, that's maybe not as significant as somebody who's failing, but somebody who's getting B's and C's who we know has historically cruised through life and gotten better grades earlier, then maybe that's actually significant also. If it's affecting them socially because people don't want to play with them because they don't pay attention to the rules, uh, mm-hmm. that could be a significant issue or a problem. So really significance is if it's present and if it's causing problems and this making a child's life um, not easily manageable and having stress for them, then it's clearly significant and needs to be managed or treated. So you, so with that mindset, you tend to stay away from, from this sort of mild, moderate, severe type of think, thought process. Correct. And again, you know, the way I look at it is, is that child is 100% to that parent. Um, they don't really care about other people to put it in a, in a spectrum of mild or moderate. What, what do you see? The, what's, what, what do you see as the role of like a, a psychological or psychoeducational assessment? Because you know the, that you know again that becomes a, a next step where you know what do, you know what should be a parent's best next step should they get a psychological should they get a psychological do they start with the neurologist what, how do you see that process well, I, I believe that the evaluation and diagnosis of ADHD can happen from anyone it can be a pediatrician a psychiatrist a psychologist a neurologist a family practice doctor you know probably most of these diagnoses are, are made by general pediatricians and family practitioners because they're seeing the children uh, pretty regularly what I believe the, the importance of management, and this was really where you know your question about psychology and psychiatry and you know psychoeducational testing, the, the the treatment to ADHD is is twofold. There's medications, and then there's non-medical approaches. And clearly, we know that the medications are going to make people perform better, um, but behavioral approaches, working with psychoeducational approaches, helping with tutoring support learning issues, learning difficulties, is clearly the most important part of managing somebody with ADHD. So before I will offer medications in almost every situation, I'll recommend that someone be evaluated by a psychologist to look at stressors, other ways that they can deal with it, 
excuse me, without using medications. With the old statement that I say is, you know, if you can learn to look before you leap, think before you speak, you know, that can help a lot of children uh, with uh, attentional problems and impulsivity problems. So that behavioral approach is important. The psychoeducational testing and psychoeducational support to allow them to do better in school is also very important. And then in combination, usually as a secondary approach is when medications are, are typically offered. All right, let's roll up our sleeves and talk about the medications. <laughs> oh, it's boy. always on everyone's mind. You know, I have lots of people coming in to see me who are reluctant or the others want to get sort of pushed in that direction a bit and they, they want some guidance. And it's it's always, you know, even for gar what I would say is garden variety type of ADHD, it's never easy. So how how do you talk to people about medication? What is What's your... How, how do you help them understand how, how it works and what it does and its goal, that, that, those kind of questions? Well, the, the real issue of, of how it works and what it does, it, you know, there are basically two major groups of, of medications that are used in, in uh, ADHD treatment. It's the stimulant medications and then the non-stimulants, which are several other classes of medications that are available. Um, the, the exact mechanism don't know if I could ex expound upon it because I'm not sure there's really complete understanding for how it, what it does. Um, but what it does, these medications, the stimulant medications, improve people's ability to focus and, and pay more attention. And just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they do better on the medication. Now, just because you put someone on a stimulant medication doesn't mean, and, and they respond and they do better and pay more attention, doesn't mean they have ADHD. So you have to make sure you've made an appropriate diagnosis and feel that they have attentional problems before you put them on a stimulant medicine and say that they're doing better. Right. Because, my, my, uh, joke about, my, my joke about that is that we'd all be cleaning our houses a bit more efficiently if we were on stimulant medication, right? And you don't correct. necessarily have to have ADHD to be, to be stimulated and more focused, correct? Absolutely. It's a medicine. That, that's why there is an abuse potential to it, because it it makes people perform better and, and move around. You know, their athletes are, are, are getting in trouble for taking it. It's, it's, it uh, helps people focus. But uh, they all, essentially, all the stimulant medications work the same. They're all effective, and study after study after study show that they're effective at about you know, on average, about 80% effective each one of the medications. And uh, what you have to basically decide on is what medication you're choosing, what delivery mode you're using. Is it a is it a pill? Is it a capsule that has to be swallowed? Is it a sprinkling capsule? Is it a patch? And understanding whether you want this medication to last for a short period of time, whether that be four to six hours, or a longer period of time between eight and 12 hours. And that's how you determine which medication you use. But and there's all a certain very, very trial similar. and error aspect to this, isn't there? Correct, there is. And, again, there are people that will respond uh, to the first stimulant medication that they get put on, and other people don't respond to the first one or respond to the second or maybe even the third. And there's no exact reason or scientific reason why they would respond to one and not another because they're all very, very similar. One of the things I think that scares people, and I tried to help them with this, and I'd like your view, is the notion that sometimes I think that some people have said, well, you know, once you've got the diagnosis, effectively it's a lifelong condition. Therefore, the message to the parent is that the, your child will be on medication now, effectively, for the rest of their life. Of his or her life, 
And I think that scares people. And I have not, in my practice, having seen thousands of kids on medication and off, that they go on for a period of time and then they go off and they may go revisit it. And I, you know, I, I sometimes think of it as like a, a window of time, especially in those crucial early years where, let's say, 7A, where the skill development is so important that it, it may give them a boost of focusing in that period. But then they go off of it for a period. What's your sense of that? I agree completely, Richard. You know, most children are going to outgrow many or some or many of the symptoms of ADHD over time. Just give it enough time, and they're going to, you know, be a little bit, bit uh, less hyperactive, less fidgety, um, maybe still quite as distractible, but the but the bigger, major physical symptoms go away of hyperactivity. So my approach to treating children is to keep them on the medication until they've done well. For typically, I use keep them on there for at least a year or two of doing well in school. And what that allows is a couple of things. Number one, it allows the child to develop some skills through this behavioral support, working with the counselor, working in the school, and it allows them to really get better and perform better. While they're doing that and performing better, it helps them develop self-esteem and confidence because there's nothing like a little bit of success uh, you know, success breeds success, and children tend to do better uh, as a self-fulfilling prophecy. When, when they start to struggle, they keep struggling, and we put them on these medications and give them some support, and they start doing well. They really feel good about themselves and start doing better. So I'll keep them on it for a year or two of success and then tr uh, attempt to wean them off of it. And most children can come off. Occasionally, a, a child will need to remain on or go back on it at a, at a, for a period of time later on. Yeah, I think that that is so. There's so much in within what you just said. I think that that refers a lot to, I, I call it in shutdown learner the, and school students. I talk about the emotional fuel that so many of these kids have their emotional fuel depleted by their non-success experiences. You know, especially early on, I say it's like leak air leaking out of the tire, so that. I think with the, when when it, when you have a successful treatment where now the teacher's not getting irritated as much with you and you're a little bit more in the game and now you're getting you know you're, you're maybe you're getting some learning therapy and some reading instruction and and you know you're feeling better and you're getting some emotional fuel in your tank and that at the, at those points it, it may be a time that you can uh, try to go in your and I also think time I think success plus time I think that in a positive way. If things are going positively, time can really help out, you know? Correct. You know, the brain matures, the person mm -hmm. matures, the family matures. And as I've heard you say before, you know, during this time as they're improving, they start to get some positive reinforcement. And that starts inflating that tire back up a little bit. You know, you right. have a little bit of success. They feel better about themselves. And instead of people telling them to stop that, put that down, pay attention, people are right. saying, nice job, good job, wow, I can't believe how well you did on that. They, uh, they 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 feel better about themselves and continue to do better. I how do you how do you handle? You know, I find a lot of the teenagers. You know, by fourteen, fifteen, even kids that have had some successful treatments. I find sometimes parents want to. Now, I don't mean force the issue with medication, but you know, they they've had some success. They want to keep the child on it. But at some point, I find the teenagers getting a bit suspicious of it and not feeling comfortable with the, the notion of of a medical treatment. And I, I I feel that you have to honor that. That you have to listen to the teenager, and and, and if they feel uncomfortable being on the medication, then, then it may be time to stop it for a period of time. What's your sense of that? Uh, I agree completely, and I would even put it before the teenager. One of the one of the parts of 
of using medications for any condition and certainly for ADHD is uh, you have to listen to the patient. Um, how they feel on the medication, are they experiencing adverse effects, which, you know, these medications certainly can cause problems. Um, but, you know, is a child feeling good on it or is the child not feeling good? If they take their medicine and they do well in school but they have headaches and they can't sleep and they're, you know, irritable, then it's right. probably not a good medication for them. So you know, yeah. all along you want to listen to the child, but as they grow up and they start feeling better and they have some success, it's appropriate to listen to that child and say, Let, yes, okay, you know, you want to try a time period off? Let's try some time with you off. Typically what I'll do is I'll wean them off during the summertime when we've gotten to that point and we say we're going to try to stop. And then I say, let's let's see how you do next school year and see how September uh, how right. September and October go. And then we'll reassess uh, after a couple weeks of school. Sure. You know, and when you say listen to the patient, I think that things that I find myself doing is also listen to the family, listen to the parents, because it, it may be that you as a practitioner or you as a clinician feel that the child has, in a sense, full-blown screaming ADHD, it's clear, all the symptoms. But, you know, you have a family system and a, and a belief in, that is clearly not oriented toward medication. And I think if you have resistant parents, and you, you might be able to, in a sense, twist their arm medically. And But if they're not... On, if you're not listening to them and their misgivings, then I think it's going to be a recipe for failure as well. Oh, I agree completely. You know, one of the, an important part of treating a patient, whether whether it's with medications, without medications, whether you're a medical doctor or a psychiatrist, psychologist, is trust and rapport. Mm-hmm. And so we we need to work as a team. You know, the most appropriate team is is the practitioner, the parent, and the patient. And that patient, whether they're three years old or 15 years old or an adult, again, I don't treat the adults, but uh, when you're treating a teenager, they, they uh, have intelligence and cognitive abilities of, of an adult. They're, they're bright. They know what's going on. We have to respect them. And if you don't you know, work together as a team, the, this, the treatment's not going to be successful. I think that trust and rapport is so essential. You know, Dr. Hallowell, who is you know, one of the top of the food chain uh, psychiatrists who who's really the, the the big name in the field is um you know he he talks about that a lot and the, and the rapport and the and the family dynamic you know that just being able to connect with the family the connection part of this and you know I don't know how to describe it because it's something that I feel when I'm in there with some people where I feel like I have the connection and and it feels right but it's it's almost like intangible do you do you experience that well, again, in every patient you treat, you know, the the goal of treatment is to is to connect uh, with the patient and the family, um, because without that trust, without that connection, without the rapport, um, it, it's less likely that people will be compliant. Now, that lack of compliance or that lack of connection is not always and should not be looked upon as any one person's problem, because that's the patients are not compliant often because doctors aren't communicative enough or doctors aren't open enough mm-hmm. or doctors aren't approachable Not taking the enough. time or something. Or, Correct. Right. You have to spend time with families. You have to be approachable. And as you said at the beginning of this whole session that we, we've been discussing, uh, you have to explain things in a way that people can understand. Right. You know, some of the best doctors uh, explain things to patients and the patients don't understand it. it. It really doesn't matter that you've got a great degree and you can treat and diagnose anything if your patients don't understand what you're saying. 
I find myself using metaphor after metaphor, you know, swimming pool analogies and spark plugs and putting on glasses to see the board better. You wouldn't just say squint harder, things like that to help people understand. Correct. And it's uh, it's appropriate to, to use language that's that's understandable and uh those analogies, those metaphors, and you know, sometimes you have to check and make sure that they're getting through in that analogy because you know, the, the simplest thing is just a direct approach and some simple words that people can understand. Michael, people always ask about the, the downside, the, you, know, the, uh, you know, what are the side effects of medication? What, what, what are some of the more common ones? The, the most common side effects are um, appetite suppression, the, uh, insomnia, not wanting to sleep at night, uh, you can also have the patient have a, a racing heart, uh, palpitations. Uh, there, you can you have growth suppression as a problem, and uh, those are probably the biggest ones. And one of the other issues that people talk about with the stimulant medications is growth suppression, and and really, if you're taking high doses for long periods of time, you can suppress people's growth, um, but most people aren't on high doses for long periods of time. And what what is like people also will ask about alternative treatments. You know, uh, there's a whole range of them and, and lots of therapies, almost a dizzying array of programs and brain train pro- a whole whole range of things that are out there. What's your sense of the alternative treatments? Un- unfortunately, I can't quote and, and give you studies and experience where a particular vitamin or a particular supplement will increase. Uh, large groups or higher percentages of patients and uh, resolve, relieve the symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, so I, I, there's there's not a great body of evidence that, that has those alternative treatments being effective. The same thing can be said about a variety of other treatments and particular programs and studies. Um, you know, there are exercises that can be done, but but I, I can't say that if I apply this in a large group of patients that, like, like I said with the stimulants a few minutes ago, that 80% of people will respond favorably to it. Right, right. I had I had a, a Facebook question, Michael. Okay. So this, we're going multi-social, you know, social media, multiple sources here. We have a question about a, a teacher's lack, a connection, the teacher or connection or lack of connection with the teacher having absolutely, I'm reading from the Facebook, kind of absolutely determined whether or not my boy shuts down. And they, they went on to talk about how to try and get the teacher to understand how the child shuts down in class. And they've tried modeling. They've tried all kinds of ways to, to help the the uh, youngster who's, I think, in high school to cope better. Any sense of either getting the teacher to understand this better or get the kid to cope better? What, what's your feeling about that? Well, I, again, I, I can say for, from my perspective as a neurologist, we want to try to get a team of people, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, and we want to get a team of people to understand the, the, the patient with ADHD, what their symptoms are, what support can help them, and how, in many cases, how just a little bit of support can go a very long way. Um, on the flip side, however, and I'm going to just uh, throw this back at you a little bit, you know, your, your background in, in, in education it's it's very difficult when you've got a classroom with uh, 20, 25, or 30 students and uh, several different teaching levels and educational levels and abilities to grasp information. Uh, it's very difficult to be a teacher, and uh, I wouldn't want to. Who is, you know, and, and be I was in that talking situation. to a, 
yeah, I'm sorry. To, it, you know, I was talking to a parent today about 504 plans, you know, because that's something that people will talk a lot about as well. You know, and they want a whole list of, of accommodations. They said, look, I believe in sending, you know, maybe having two, three, four the most, you know, really good accommodations that can maybe go back to the school because so often I see this sort of checklist of, 15, 20 different accommodations. So if you had three or four kids in the class, that's, in effect, 20, 30, 40, 50 accommodations that a teacher will have to try and keep track of. Then they basically will throw their hands up and say, look, I can't do this. There's right. no way. Whereas if you had exactly. a few accommodations that really were, were hitting the mark, that might be more effective. I, I agree with you completely. Do, do, you, do, you get in, do neurologists get involved with 504 plans? Uh, we will at times uh, help support and make some recommendations for, for educational support. Uh, but one of my approaches is to have this as a team. And because uh, we're very fortunate to have psychologists and uh, you know, neuropsychologists in the region, I, I often have uh, them be more involved in, in making those kinds of recommendations because, again, I'm not an educator. Um, I know we're winding down time-wise. What, what about... What about um, going forward? How about past high school? What about what about ADHD going into college? What's what's the trajectory there? How does that play out? Well, again, there are students that are going to uh, outgrow these symptoms through high school and and uh, sometimes be able to get into college and do well in college without any any ongoing problems or difficulties. But when I approach someone and have someone who's in high school, who's on their medications, who's um, you know doing well with their medications, and about to go into college, you know, there's no reason to to rock the boat and, and take medications away. Let's let them start 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 college, keep their medications going, and uh, follow up and see how they're doing. And again, give them a, a little bit of time of success. Keep them on their medications through freshman year, and if they do well through freshman year and they're doing uh, able to handle things without difficulties, then we may try to wean them off uh, as they get a little bit older. Uh, I think there's no reason to stop. Yes, sir. No, there's no reason to stop their medications just because they've gotten to college, and it's it's not a a guarantee that they're never going to be able to come off their medications if they're still taking them when they're in college. I guess one of the bigger challenges of college is the unstructured nature of it. You know, sleep, you know, sleep patterns are, are very changed, as you and I know from our own kids being in college, um, as well as some other habits that that may be kicking in during the college. So it's a it's a much it seems to me much tougher to sort of self manage. No longer having the, the structure of you know high school has a, a kind of structure to it. You know, you get up in the morning, you go. You know, there's a certain rhythm to the day. Whereas like in college seems so much more unstructured that it it may be you know go counter to the to to the lot of the regimen the, the treatment regimen of ADHD you know correct well there's another aspect of uh of the of the structure of high school that goes away when you go to college and it's a uh, mother and father uh who who often right. end up doing a lot of work uh helping to get the these these children through high school and uh now when you're waking up in in college and you've got to organize your life uh, completely on your own uh it is a big struggle so that's why i would not typically take someone off uh if they've just started doing well through the end of high school i would keep them on their medications when they go to college but that also plays back to the behavioral approach working with mm-hmm. a counselor 
working with psychologists and understanding and developing adaptations in order to perform and organize and uh, you know, make yourself uh, perform at your best. Great. And, you know, in my ADHD brain now, I'm going back to what's the youngest age? What's the youngest age that you might consider putting a child on medication? The youngest that I would typically put a child on medication is is four years of age. Um, I could say rarely I've done it a little bit younger. That uh, common, though, like, that you would go four years old? What's more, is that you might consider it, but is it common that you would do that? No, it, it's not the typical time to start. But again, as, as a neurologist, I end up seeing uh, patients that are being referred from a lot of different uh, practitioners. But the typical age for starting medications is between six and six and ten years of age. Michael, great information. Can you tell people how to get a hold of you or the Department of Neurology or just, just um, you know, how if they wanted to get a hold of you, what would be a way that they can do that? Uh, I, I practice at the Children's Regional Hospital at Cooper, as you said uh, earlier uh, in this session. Uh, we're, we're in that Cooper, the, the Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and uh, the, the website is uh, www.cooperhealth.com. And uh, it's right in, right in Camden. We have a large division of child neurologists. Uh, we have a developmental pediatrician who also was involved in seeing children with ADHD and uh, a very nice uh, team that's here that can help provide care. Uh, as I said you know, earlier, Michael, I, most I really appreciate you know, I, I, My goal, as I said at the beginning, is to, is to uh, present, you know, almost like we're talking in the living room about uh, about these complicated issues. I know parents can feel a, a, a range of anxiety and concern over them. And, you know, I, I think that the, your perspective really puts people at ease, and I, and, I, and I appreciate it. So thank you very much for helping me kick this off. And ne next month, my guest will be uh, Miss, Mrs. Christine Robinson. And Christine is an ADH. We're going to stay with the topic of ADH. She's an ADD action coach. She's a certified ADHD coach. So I think that um, we'll probably be focusing on the non-medical side. Um, again, to visit my website, I'm also through Cooper Hospital, but I'm at shutdownlearner.com, um, and be sure and visit thecoffeeclutch.com. That's thecoffeeclutch, K-L-A-T-C-A-H.com, to listen to their, they, they have a range of wonderful hosts and interviews on, on all kinds of topics related to, to children, and be sure to uh, support Mayor Johnson at www.mayorjohnson, that's M-A-Y-E-R, johnson.com. And thanks for everyone listening to our first episode of School Struggles, where we talk no-nonsense, plain language about your child. So thanks, folks. See you next time. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye.